morning. It's good to see you this morning. And uh, we're going to forego an offering this morning. So guys, you can at ease. Go back to your uh, positions there. That's okay. We, we, don't, we don't need to take an offering anyway, Jeremy. That's all right. That's okay. We are looking forward to the next two weeks, Christmas morning and New Year's morning uh, together. And as Jeremy said, we're not, we're not going to change anything as uh, we are accustomed to meeting. Uh, we, we feel like a change already moving our gathering place is a, is a change enough already for us. And so we're going to meet at the same time. And uh, we are going to have a little bit shorter service next week. And so please encourage yourself. I had somebody, somebody say kind of joking with me this last week. Uh, well, I'm sure the service will be an hour and it'll be, you know, a few minutes of singing and then 55 minutes of Paul preaching. But uh, we won't do that. I'm going to try to, to, we're going to have the kids singing next week. We're going to have the kids choir singing next week. And uh, we're going to have some uh, great time singing together. And then I'm going to preach a very short sermon. So encourage the people that you, you bring. The, the sermon's not going to last that long. And then let you get on with your Christmas. We are uh, finishing this week our last uh, look at the songs of salvation in the book of Luke, and uh, we are in Luke chapter 2. Hopefully you've been able to go along in your Advent uh, book with us as we've walked through these songs of salvation. Hopefully they've been an encouragement to you. If you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word there in Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, and we will start in verse 22, Luke chapter 2, verse 22. Luke chapter 2, verse 22, and I'm going to read down through verse 35. Luke 2, 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed 
and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want you to know today that salvation has been revealed. Salvation has been revealed. That's a wonderful statement, isn't it? It's a wonderful truth. Salvation has been revealed. But I wonder... I wonder, when I make that statement, salvation has been revealed, I wonder how many of us truly understand what is meant by that statement. Indeed, we we can say salvation has been revealed, and I know what I mean when I say that, but you may have a completely different thought or idea about what that means. When I declare that salvation has been revealed, where does your mind go? What what does your mind grab onto in that statement? How would you define or explain that statement? Salvation has been revealed. Let's meditate on the word salvation for a moment, a word that we use a lot in a church, right? Salvation. What does salvation mean? Well, the fact of salvation implies a danger or a distress or a problem or a circumstance from which one needs to be delivered. Salvation implies a problem that needs to be rescued from. And it requires then a someone or a something being in need of salvation. It also usually implies an agent or an instrument of salvation. Someone or something enters into the circumstance, enters into the problem, and changes the circumstance or brings the one in danger out of danger or solves the problem or calms the distress. So salvation, the the concept salvation requires someone needing to be saved from something. And it also implies usually someone coming from outside of the situation to rescue the one in need. The term also varies in its significance given the extent or the realness of the danger or circumstance. The term can be used very lightly. Like if I were to say Spokane was saved by the appearance of of the sun. What, what am I implying by that? It is dreary outside. It is cold. 
And one day, the sun will reappear and will save us all from our coldness, right? We can use the term salvation in that way. I was talking with one of our members earlier. They just came back from Cancun, where it is really nice. Back to Spokane. I'm sure they're feeling in need of salvation this morning. And maybe you feel that way as well. We can use the term salvation in that way and multiple other ways we can use it. Or the term salvation can be used with great seriousness. If you talk to someone who's ever been in danger of losing their life, have been rescued from drowning or rescued from death, They talk about their salvation very seriously. But the salvation depends upon the realness or the extent of the danger, the extent of the problem. So when I say that salvation has been revealed, there's a context in which we must place that statement I mean something by it, and I hope you know what I mean by it, but you may think it means entirely something entirely different than what I intend. There needs to be clarification. There needs to be some questions answered. There needs to be some inspection of this statement. Salvation has been revealed. What's the danger or distress that needs to be delivered from? How real or serious is the danger? And who or what is doing the delivering? Now, very, very briefly, I want to think also of the word revealed. Salvation has been revealed. If something is revealed, that must mean that at some point it had been hidden or not able to be seen for some reason. The concept also usually implies an agent of revealing. In other words, someone or something had to pull back the curtain or open the envelope to reveal or clear away the fog so that the sun can be seen. In order for something to be revealed, it had to be covered and it has to have someone or something uncover it. Therefore, the statement, salvation has been revealed, implies that someone has shown or revealed a salvation that had previously been hidden, not visible. It just so happens that this statement, salvation, has been revealed. This statement is the main idea of the passage that we're looking at this morning. And we are not left to our own thoughts and meditations to figure out what is this salvation and who is revealing this salvation and what is the danger or the extent of the seriousness of the danger uh, that we are being rescued from. Because a man named Simeon A man named Simeon is the one who tells us here in Luke 
chapter 2, that salvation has been revealed and he, in this passage, answers all of the questions we need to know to understand this statement. Salvation has been revealed. Let's look at our text again. Let's look at our text again and see who this man is, Simeon. We meet Simeon at a very special occasion. Look at it there in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, it's a plural, their purification. It's an odd way of speaking about this situation, this occasion. This is the occasion of Mary's purification. Forty days or so after she gives birth, according to the law, she is to be purified. And she has gone to be purified at the temple, but she's also brought Jesus. And it says this is the time of his purification. We see that they bring Jesus according to the law of Moses. They bring him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord at the temple. As Exodus 13 says, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. This is, this is in a a way, a dedication. Mary and Joseph are bringing Jesus to the temple to, yes, be purified according to the law of the Lord, but also to dedicate, to present Jesus here. To offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This is, this is what you would have offered if you didn't have a lamb to offer for Mary's purification after the days of her uncleanliness were accomplished. But it's also the sacrifice that was given for a Nazarite who was being dedicated to the Lord. Here, Jesus, along with Mary, being brought to the temple to be dedicated, to be presented as Hannah. Remember in the Old Testament, as Hannah presented Samuel to the Lord and dedicated his life to service to the Lord. This is what Mary is doing with Jesus. Jesus is being presented, dedicated to the Lord at the temple. And it is at this occasion, what an occasion, it's this occasion where we meet this man named Simeon. Look at it there in verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. He was godly, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation 
that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Here we meet Simeon at the presentation or the dedication of the baby Jesus to God by his parents in the temple. And this, we find, is not a chance meeting. Simeon is led there to the temple by the Spirit of God. In fact, it stands out here, as in what I just read, it stands out how central the Spirit of God is to this entire scene unfolding in Luke chapter 2. It says that the Spirit of God was upon Simeon. It says that Simeon came in the Spirit into the temple And the text also says that the Spirit of God had revealed something to Simeon. There's our word revealed. What had been revealed to Simeon? The Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he would not die until he had seen something. Or more clearly, more correctly, Someone. Imagine that. The Spirit of God had revealed to Simeon that he would not die until he saw with his own eyes the Lord's Christ. What do you know about the word or the term Christ? It means the anointed one or Messiah. It's a reference to the king that God had appointed to rule over his people. So Simeon is told he will not die until he sees the Messiah. He won't die until he sees the Christ, the king of Israel. That had been promised to Israel. Now look, look again at what Simeon says when he takes up baby Jesus in his arms. Look at what Simeon says there, starting in verse number 29. And, and you don't see it in the English, but in the Greek, at the very beginning of the sentence is the word now. So it actually reads this way. Now. Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, Lord. Now, this is the day. The Spirit of God had told me that I would not die until I saw the Messiah. And now, today is that day. Simeon is being discharged from his duty. He had been given an assignment. Simeon, you are to wait. You are to wait for the revealing of the Messiah. And now Simeon says, today, now, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, Lord. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Think about this for a second. The Holy Spirit 
revealed to Simeon that he wasn't going to die until he saw the king with his own eyes. He waits for what is assumed to be a a very long time, and then one day, one day, the Spirit leads him into the temple, and the Spirit points him to the baby Jesus. Simeon, this is him. Again, I think of Samuel when he went to David's house. Remember that story? And he saw all the options for king. And the Lord said, no, none of these. Do you have any others? And finally David was brought. And the Lord says to Samuel, this is him. This is what happens in the temple that day. The Spirit leads Simeon there and reveals that this one in Mary's arms is the king. Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he wasn't going to die until he saw the king with his own eyes. He waits until one day the Spirit of the Lord brings him to see this king and Simeon then gives a blessing to God for keeping his word and for revealing salvation to him, just as he said he would. And now, Simeon's ministry is done. God orchestrated this entire moment so that we could hear from the mouth of Simeon, salvation has been revealed. So we see that this salvation that has been revealed is a salvation revealed by God. God is the revealer of the salvation. We have an answer to that question. Who is it that reveals salvation? It's God. It is God himself. Now, if God has chosen to reveal something, isn't that what we all want? Don't we want God to do something, reveal something, say something? If God has chosen to orchestrate this entire scene so that we can hear Simeon say the words, salvation has been revealed. My eyes have seen your salvation. If God has revealed something, we should all take notice since we live in his world. God has revealed this salvation and he's done so with such great orchestration here found in Luke 2 that we should all stop and we should all take notice but what else what else do we see about this salvation do you see it there we also see that this salvation by God revealed by God is tied to a person These terms, salvation and Messiah or king, these are used synonymously. He's told that he will not die until he sees the Lord's Christ. And when he sees the Lord's Christ or the Lord's king, he says, now my eyes have seen your salvation. 
The salvation revealed by God is tied to a person. The good news of salvation is tied to the revealing of the king. My eyes have seen your salvation because I have seen your chosen, dedicated, appointed king. So so get this. This is important. Biblically, Biblically, the, the, the salvation that our scriptures speak of, the good news of salvation is inextricably tied to the figure of a king. Now, it's odd to me. It's odd to me how we have grown accustomed to talking about salvation in church and in life, we use the vocabulary of salvation. We talk about salvation in our Christian lives, and yet we do so almost entirely devoid of his kingship. Oh, we talk about his kingship all the time. We talk about Jesus being king, but not as the central or a central component of the good news of salvation. Almost as if these were two separate things. Jesus is the king, and Jesus is also the savior. This is not the case for Simeon. When Simeon says salvation has been revealed, he means to say, that the salvation and the king are one and the same. Salvation and the king are one and the same. This is how all of faithful Israel understood salvation. The coming of the king is the hope of Israel. It is their consolation or comfort. Can, can I just press on that a bit more and say, if you understand the benefits of salvation, but you don't understand Jesus' position as the king, I want to challenge you. you. You need to reevaluate the salvation that you think you possess. Jesus did not come to offer you merely the benefits of salvation, devoid of his kingship. Jesus came to be recognized and received as the king. And he is saving those who have received him as such. His work of salvation is for those who have bowed the knee to him as king. It is odd to me how we separate the two. The good news of salvation is the good news of a king, God's king, that has come. We also see here that the good news of salvation in this king means the consolation or comfort of Israel. This is what he says. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. For Simeon, God's salvation meant comfort for Israel. 
Now this language of comfort and consolation is tied to the latter half of Isaiah. Isaiah, you, you may know this already, Isaiah is most simply understood as being in two halves or two parts. The first 39 chapters are, it is the message of judgment. Chapters 1 through 39 express God's judgment towards Israel for their unfaithfulness. Chapters 40 through 66, this is God's comfort to Israel. Isaiah 40 through 66, God promises that his time of judgment upon his people will be concluded and he will deliver his people from where they've been sent in judgment. He will redeem all of Israel. This message of salvation is communicated as a message of consolation or comfort. I love Isaiah 40. When's the last time you read Isaiah 40? Everyone, and I, I'm, I'm not saying this lightly, everyone who seeks to trust in the Lord or grow their trust in the Lord needs to know Isaiah 40 by heart. Isaiah 40 communicates this comfort to Israel. Let me, let me read. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read a couple of portions of Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 begins with these words. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That picture of double, think of a napkin being doubled over. She has received double for all her sins. God has judged Israel and they have received the just payment for their sin. God has dealt with their sins. And made a fitting judgment for their iniquities. And now their judgment is complete. He goes on to say, a voice cries. A voice cries in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here's what's being said. God's saying, Isaiah, speak comfort. Speak comfort to my people. Tell them that I am coming to get them. Tell tell them that their captivity, their bondage is done. I'm coming to get them and no mountain is going to stand in my way. No valley will detour me from getting to them. The roads will be leveled. A A highway will be made through the desert for me to get to my people and bring them out. I am coming to rescue them. You you remember the song? Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no river wide enough. Right? Ain't no valley low enough to keep me from getting to you, babe. Remember that song? Everybody knows that song. See, that's actually just inserted there to give you a break from me shouting and all of that. 
We love that song. I love singing that, ki- that, that song with my kids. I love singing that song. It's a fun song. And, and you know, you know, truthfully, when I sing that song with my kids, I, I mean it. Kids, I'm going to be there. Doesn't matter what happens. Doesn't matter where you are. I'm going to be there for you. Ain't no mountain high enough. Ain't no river wide enough. Ain't no valley low enough to keep me from getting to you. I will be there to help you whenever you need it. And I mean it. And yet, do you know I'm limited in being able to keep that promise? I'm limited in being able to keep that promise. I mean it, and I'm sincere in that promise, but I, I actually don't have the power to keep that promise because the day is coming when I'm not going to be able to be there. In fact, my children need to know that dad is not going to be their salvation. I can't be. There's lots of things that could keep me from delivering on my promise. But see, and this is why this promise in Isaiah 40 is way better than that song, right? Because God has promised. And there is no mountain, and there is no valley, there is no obstacle that will stand in his way. He will deliver his people. I'm coming to get you. And this salvation, this salvation of my people, God says, will be done in the sight of all flesh, all peoples, all mankind will see the salvation of my people. They will all see it. It will be glorious. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed in the salvation of his people because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And then as if to answer someone who might doubt what God has said, I have to read the next part in Isaiah 40. A voice cries, or a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Here's what God wants him to tell the people. All flesh is grass. Do you remember what grass looks like? It's been a while since we've seen grass. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God's salvation's coming. Isaiah tells the people, it's coming. You can count on it. You can know that it is sure because God's word will stand forever. And God says that when his salvation comes, all mankind will see it and take notice. God's salvation of his people will be the revealing of his glory. Now, when, when had this salvation taken place for Israel? If you don't know the Old Testament very well, they, the nation of Israel, God's people, had been put into captivity Isaiah is speaking to them in captivity, giving them this comfort that one day they will be saved from their captivity. When had that happened? When had that taken place? When had the deliverance, as is pictured by Isaiah in Isaiah 40, when had that happened? It never had. It never had. 
Yes, the people, or at least a percentage of the people of Israel, had eventually returned to Jerusalem and to the land God had promised them. But this return was not a glorious return. It was not a return that would make all flesh take notice. In fact, they returned from captivity only to be oppressed by new oppressors. Eventually, Rome becomes their great oppressor. This is not the salvation that Isaiah had prophesied and promised. Where then is the comfort of Israel? Where is her consolation? Where is her king, her great deliverer, who will stop at nothing to get to them? Where is he? Listen again to the words of Simeon. Now, he says, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, Lord, for my eyes have seen your salvation. That, do you see what he says there? That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The consolation promised to Israel by Isaiah and the salvation promised to, reve- to be revealed to Simeon before he dies are one and the same. Simeon says that this baby in his arms is the king appointed by God to save his people. This is Isaiah 40, the fulfillment of this promise here in this baby that Simeon holds in his arms. This salvation, he says, is a light for revelation to the Gentiles, all of mankind, and for glory to your people Israel. Not only will all mankind see the salvation of God's people, but this salvation, this king prepared in the sight of all peoples, he, he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. The clear implication is that Israel's comfort, Israel's consolation, her king come to bring deliverance for her, He also has come to bring Gentiles into that salvation. This salvation will be for the glory of Israel. God has kept his promises to his people. And those who have believed God's promises have not been disappointed. Isn't this what defines and characterizes God's people for all of time? God's people are the ones who believe what God has said. They believe God's promises Through trial, through temptation, through difficulty, through despair, they believe what God has said. I was going to give Melinda Ferguson a hard time. I told her, there's this old song that I knew Melinda would know, but she's in the nursery. Dan, you can sing it to her later. Standing on the promises. You remember that song? Standing on the promises of Christ my King. Through eternal ages let his praises ring. Glory in the highest, I will shout and sing, standing on the promises of God. You remember that song? This, this is the song of God's people. Standing on his promises. Now, what are his promises? The, the only problem with that song is it's a little generic. I love the sentiment of it, but what are his promises? He has promised to save his people. He has promised to save them. And we can trust what God has said Those who have trusted God's promises have not been disappointed and never will be disappointed. 
His faithfulness to His Word is the glory of His people. They are not fools after all. By God delivering upon His promises of salvation, He emphasizes Israel's role in the world. They have been the vehicle by which God has brought salvation into the world. But as we revel in this, we are presented with a question. In what way are the Gentiles needing to be saved? We, we understand Israel's salvation here in this context. Israel needs to be saved from her enemies. Israel needs to be saved from her oppressors and, and, and receive the kingdom. But what way are the Gentiles needing to be saved? What is the nature of this salvation that he's bringing to the Gentiles? Well, very simply... The Gentiles are pictured as being in darkness. That's what he says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are in darkness. They do not know God. This is what Ephesians says about the Gentiles. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, you were separated from Christ, the King, the Messiah. You were separated from him. You weren't his people. He's not, she, he, he's not your king. You're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and the strangers of the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So, so get this, this is important. What Simeon is saying is that God has revealed his king and that his king will deliver Israel from their oppressors and will bring the Gentiles out of their darkness and into the light of the knowledge of God. They will no longer be in darkness, but they will know God like Israel knows God. They will know God as his people. Oh, but then, but then Simeon in the spirit turns to Mary and says something very significant. He turns to Mary and makes an unexpected revelation regarding the salvation brought in God's king. The good news of salvation in God's king will be a source of great division. Look at it there. God's salvation will be rejected by many in Israel, separating them from their God. Many will oppose the king and refuse their promised consolation. Look at it, verse number 34. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The news of the arrival of the king. What, what should this do to Israel? Her comfort has come. Her king has arrived. This this news should send shockwaves of rejoicing and open celebration through the streets of Jerusalem. In fact, from this day where Simeon holds baby Jesus in his arms, from that day, a little over 30 years from then, from that day, that is exactly what will happen as Jesus, now a grown man, rides into Jerusalem. 
and the people line the streets. They wave palm branches and they throw down their cloaks on the ground showing that they are giving their obedience to the one that they see as the king. The people cry out. Do you remember what they cry out when Jesus comes in? Hosanna, son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who is sent by God. Hosanna, son of, da- son of David. The word Hosanna means save us now. Save us, O king of David. God's king. You're here. Save us. And yet, at that very hour, at that very hour, the leadership of Israel had already rejected their king and were conspiring to kill him. The people, the people, the very same people who are receiving him on that Sunday will by that Thursday follow their leadership in the rejection of their king. The very ones that were promised salvation and God's anointed king. The very ones who had been chosen by God to be the vehicle to bring salvation to the world. The day that should have been their glory was instead their shame. Do you see the tragic irony in this? Simeon Simeon paints a, a fuller picture for us. The Gentiles are being brought into the light of those who know God only to see here that those who supposedly already know God, who are already in the light, are themselves in darkness. What would lead Israel to reject her king and spurn her comfort? What would lead them to reject the glorious news of Isaiah 40? Israel wanted to be rescued from their enemies. Israel wanted the kingdom to be established. They wanted the blessings of the covenant that God had promised them. But listen, hear this. They wanted all of those things. But they did not want to let go of their sin. They wanted God's benefits and blessings. But they didn't want God as he had revealed himself. And this... This reality. I mean, if if any man, if any people could have ever sought God on their own or received God in their own power, if any people was well suited, it was the people Israel. And yet they rejected her king. She rejected the one who was bringing salvation. And this, this points to a problem, doesn't it? A problem that is inherent not only to Gentiles, but to every man and woman in the world. 
It is the problem. It is the danger. It is the issue of the world. And it is this issue of sin. Like Israel wanted to be free from her enemies and wanted the kingdom to be established and yet did not want God himself, the nations also have a great longing for many good things. We want good things, don't we? We want salvation in many ways. We want the answer to poverty and disease and racism and war and death. We, we want to see the resolution of these problems. We want to see all of these problems solved Everyone in the world wants to put an ending to suffering and pain. I was just listening to Christmas songs this last week, again with my family, and we listened to Josh Groban, you know, the CD. We love that CD. We like to try to sing like Josh Groban. We get close. But he sings a song in there about seeing, praying for peace on earth, praying for all the problems of the world to be solved. And even calls all of us to action. He says all of us have to, all of us have to do our part. We all need to chip in and, and see our own truth and fix the problems that are in our immediate power to fix and address. We all want to see these things ended. But no one, listen to me, no one wants God. No one wants God, not as he has revealed himself. Because we don't want to turn from our sin. We would rather, here's what we do. We would rather create another God. We would rather create God in a way that makes us feel comfortable. We don't want God as he has revealed himself. We would rather make God into something that we want him to be and imagine that he is different than he really is. No one wants God. Why? Because we do not want to turn from our sin. Oh, we hate the effects of sin. We want to be saved from the effects of sin. We want rid of the curse, don't we? We hate sin's consequences. We hate how we feel when we don't treat others right. We hate how we feel when we're caught in our lies. We, we hate how we feel when we have failed once again. We hate all the consequences and effects of sin. But our hatred of God is such. And our love for sin and trust in self is such that we willingly refuse the light we refuse to see the light as they refused to see the light of Jesus that had come into the world. Why? Because men love darkness rather than light. Salvation being revealed in God's appointed king then is not what we want to hear 
Let me say that again. I said we need, we need some clarification on this message. Salvation has been revealed. That message is actually not what mankind wants to hear. They want the effects of salvation, but they don't want salvation himself. You see, the coming of God's king is actually not good news. The coming of God's king means that he will bring to judgment those who've rejected God and sinned against him. But here's the glorious truth. The king coming does not mean good news for us who are the enemies of God, and yet the king himself comes to rid us of our real problem. And this problem is our own hearts. Jesus has come. He has come to take our sin and put it upon himself as our king. He has taken sin upon himself. And he has paid the punishment, the the penalty for sin, which is death. He has experienced the wrath of God as God's king. He has experienced the wrath of God against sin. None of us can stand against God. God will pour out his wrath upon us. But the king has come. And he has taken sin upon himself. And he has been made sin for us. And he has experienced the wrath of God against sin for us. He has died for us. And he has raised again to accomplish victory over our sin. He has accomplished victory over our death. And he, in his cross work, in his death and resurrection, he has, like the napkin I talked about a minute ago, he has met our sin. He has paid double for our sin. And he has made a way now in the desert. He has made a highway. And no obstacle can stand in his way. He has removed every obstacle by his death and resurrection. And he has made a way of salvation for us, for his people Israel, and for all the Gentiles. And this is the good news. And it is good news. He is the king. And he is to be acknowledged as the king. But apart from his work on the cross and his resurrection, there would be no good news because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Coming as the king would mean our judgment and our death. And so, as the loving, gracious, wise, good king that he is, he himself has gone to death for us. He himself has risen from the dead. He himself has accomplished salvation for us so that we can be rescued from our sin. And he can be acknowledged as our king. Isn't it a privilege to be able to call him our king? Is he your king today? Is he acknowledged as your king today? 
is he your salvation? I hope that you would realize your need. When I say salvation has been revealed, I hope that that has significance for you now that it did not possess before. Salvation has been revealed. What a blessing. What a reason to give thanks in this season. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and for its trustworthiness, for its surety. We put our trust in what you have said. We put our trust in your promises. God, you have given your son, Jesus, to be the king, the dedicated, appointed Messiah for your people. And by your grace, you have accomplished this salvation for all to see. And we can be brought in by your promises. We can be brought in to the salvation and know for sure that we have been rescued from our sin because we've placed our faith in the King, the one who has accomplished salvation for us. I pray that you would make us into a people, a people that worship and serve the King with every breath of our life as a church, that it would be obvious that we worship Him as King. Increase our faith in Your Word. Increase our joy and our thankfulness and our gratitude in this salvation. Transform us by it. And I pray for all of those who are here, young and old and everywhere in between, who have refused the light of your salvation because of their love for sin and their refusal to repent and turn from sin, their refusal of the light, I pray that you would conquer their hearts today, that they would see their great need and that you have provided for that great need to save them. Your salvation has been revealed. For this, we are eternally grateful, God. In your name we pray, amen.